0: We are looking for the easy button, like you said, and the irony in this whole thing is the people that sell us the easy button, they don't even have an easy life. These YouTubers and TikTokers and Instagrammers that are selling you on the easy button, they're working 12 hour days and analyzing what makes people click on it and how to present information and what I need to do to get you to want to buy my course. They don't have the easy life they're selling you on. Overall, most of us are getting played.
1: Welcome back to the Real Estate Rockstars podcast. I am Shelby Johnson, and I'm here with David Green, former cop turned real estate agent, investor, podcast host, speaker, author, inspiration on the agent side of the house. He works the market all over California. He is a team leader with 15 agents and has been an agent for eight years. And so far this year, It is just now the beginning of October. They've closed $100 in volume already. And you may be thinking, you're like, yo, dude, this, uh, this guy, he sounds familiar, David Green. Where do I know him from? Well, maybe from his feature on CNN or his feature on HGTV. Or you might know him from the number one largest podcast for real estate investors nationwide. Whoa worldwide, excuse me, 25 million downloads and counting. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's called Bigger Pockets. He hosts it. Or maybe you've heard him from one of the five books he's authored for both agents and real estate investors. David Green in the house. So stoked to have you on the show today. Welcome, friend.
0: Thank you, Shelby. That was quite the intro. I got to ask, did you write that or did Chat GPT do that?
1: Um, I did not write it. What I did was I compiled it from (laughs) the internet, from emails, from... You know what I mean? I'm just a good you know arts and craft person over here.
0: Compiling, writing, that's the same thing. But I like how you said, I didn't write it, I compiled it. It reminds me of Michael Scott in The Office when he declared bankruptcy. And they said, you can't just say bankruptcy. And he said, I didn't say it, I declared it. Very funny clip if you haven't seen that.
1: Dude, I haven't seen it. I'm like one of the one people, um, only people in the world who has not seen The Office.
0: Too busy doing your sit ups, crunches, V ups, push ups. Gotta keep the the app.
1: You know. (laughs) Okay, dude. Well, today, of course, we want to talk about your newest book that's coming out October seventeenth, two thousand twenty-three. It's titled Pillars of Wealth. So unlocks how you make more money each year, save more money invest it and ultimately achieve financial freedom. Since our audience is primarily real estate agents, I'd love to go deep on how they can use it within their own lives and businesses. Mm. But first, we need some more like David Green, the human. Could you (laughs) take us back specifically to like feelings or frustrations you were having in your life? Maybe cop times, maybe you you, you choose, that led you to wanting to change and get into real estate.
0: That's really good. Uh, Let's see how far we... Because a lot of the story is actually covered in the book. It's not an autobiography, but the principles that I'm teaching in there, I use specific highlights from my life to show how they worked in a practical example. Because we'll often get told things as real estate agents like, you need to delegate, you need to leverage, but no one gives you a practical example of what that would look like. And sometimes if you don't get that vision, you don't know how to move forward. So I was raised at a young age in a house with parents that fought quite a bit and a lot of it was over money. We were just not super great financially. My dad was a blue collar worker. My mom and dad got married really young, had three kids really quickly. Finances caused most of the emotional pain in the house and I picked up on that when I was young. And I just remember thinking as a kid, if we had more money, or if I didn't ask for things, if I had my own money, my mom and dad would fight less. And it sort of just drilled itself into me. So I got into saving when I was very young. I would save my birthday money. I would save my Christmas money. I was never a spender. When, when I would have an opportunity to spend money, even as a little kid, I would be thinking, well, if I spend this money on this thing, I'm going to have nothing to show for it when it's done. But if I save my money, I'll still have it next month. And I can't remember a time I didn't have $100. So I sort of brought that attitude into uh, my the work environment that I would later get into. So as a kid, I would mow lawns for people, cut their grass. Like when they were on vacation, I would go take care of their house. I would referee games. I would babysit. Like whenever someone needed work to do, I would go work for my grandpa, and he would pay me to help him with painting type stuff. I was always oh, there's work. Let me go work. I just didn't like the thought of not having money. And then when you have to do things you don't like for work, which was the case for me all the time, I wasn't super thrilled about babysitting or waking up early in the morning to go sand door frames for painting. You don't want to waste the money that you've made. At least I didn't. I was like, if I had to give up my weekend to do this, I'm not doing it for nothing. And going to go spend my money on something stupid like lunch with my friends. So savings was was a pretty big part of my life. And I eventually got a job at a restaurant and I learned, oh my gosh, if you get tips, it's like getting paid for five extra hours that I didn't work. So I'd go there and I'd get paid for six hours of work plus five hours extra. And I was like, I worked, I got paid for twice as much money as I worked. This is incredible. How do I get more tips? And that started this journey of learning what my boss wanted. So I was hired as a busboy Well, I wanted to be a waiter. All the other waiters were in their 30s and 40s. I'm 18 years old, maybe 17 at the time. So I just asked her, what do I have to do to be a server? And she said, you gotta learn all these things. So every day, as soon as we would slow down, I would ask her questions. What is this? What is that? What do I need to know? Why is it call chicken cordon bleu? What's the sauce that goes into the picada?" And she actually put together like a training course for me and the other servers based off all these questions, which I would then study. As soon as I was done with my job, I would ask the servers, what do you need? How can I help you? I'd be clearing off the plates of other people's tables. I'd be walking the food from the kitchen to the tables i'd be filling up people's waters when there was no customers to serve i would help them with their side work just whatever needed to be done i would do it i would walk them to their cars at the end of the night because it was you know late at night most of them were women they'd be walking at 11 12 o'clock at night in a dark parking lot well what happened shelby was everyone started to say things like we love david and that made its way to my boss she was just hearing all the time david's the best this guy's incredible i would i would go get sodas for the cooks when they were thirsty Just go to the bar, grab them a big thing of soda and bring it back. So I ended up getting promoted pretty quick. And then it went from like $30 or $40 a night in tips to $100 to $200 a night in tips. Like My income almost tripled. Then I learned how to become the best server. Now, the book contains some of the details of the actual techniques that I used to get promoted and work my way up. But long story short, I was saving all of that money. I would track wherever the money went, every dollar that was spent, I knew where it was going. And I was making as much money as I could. So when I graduated college, I had paid for my school. I had my car completely paid off and I had $100,000 saved up in the bank, which I then used to start investing in real estate.
1: Dude, that's incredible. (laughs) Okay, so I'm sitting here, I'm listening. I'm like, okay, you sound like you are hyper-motivated From day one, almost, you know, through the environment that you were in and whatever happened, you know, with your family and all of those things. But hypothetically, if someone's sitting there and they're like, I don't have this drive, I don't have this motivation, do you think that it can be created? Is this like a nature or nurture? And I know this is like off the top topic, but I'm genuinely curious. What do you think about that motivation, that drive?
0: I think you can turn it into a game that will make you more motivated. So, like, if you go back to my waiter days, I would write down on a piece of paper how much money I made that night. And if I spent any money at all, I would also write that down on the piece of paper. So I knew at the end of the week when I went to the bank, how much money I should have. It was like a form of learning accounting really. And the rule was I have to save at least $500 every week. That was like the minimum that I had to save was 500. And if I wasn't going to hit that goal, that would make me a failure. I wasn't going to be a failure. So I would go pick up another shift. Sometimes I would even pay the other waiters 20 bucks. So they would take the night off and I could go work their shift to make a hundred bucks. And, uh, and I know that doesn't sound like a ton of money, but we're talking about like 2001 through 2005. So probably like double whatever that was by today's standards. Cause we've had so much inflation, maybe even more than that. And the game is what kept me motivated. I was like, all right, I got to get to 500 this week. I made 600. I won by a hundred bucks. Can I do that again next week? I was sort of getting my dopamine in life, not from what my friends were doing, which was smoke a weed, getting drunk, taking trips to Mexico, which I always thought was funny when you're 21 years old. Oh, your life is so hard and you have to go to Mexico four times a year to take all these vacations. Like, oh, live your life when you're young. When you're young is when it's the easiest. I don't get that. Like, when you're old is when you need a vacation. You're stressed out from the economy and clients and family life and kids, whatever you have. When you're young is when you have all this energy. You really should be working the most. So it became motivating to me because I was seeing the progress. I was watching my savings account grow from 10,000 to 20,000 to 30,000 to 40,000. I was hearing people say, that's not normal. You, You shouldn't have that much money as a kid. I was saving more money than the adults that were in my life. And it felt good. I think for people that are struggling with motivation, like you said, they've got to find a way to turn it into a game that they like to play.
1: Real quick, before we get back to the episode, two things I wanted to share. First, thank you so much for tuning in week after week. It really means the world to all of us. Second, we feel like we're just getting started. If you enjoy what we do here, please follow us on this app, share an episode, or give us a quick review. I promise we're working hard behind the scenes to make this show as good as possible now and into the future. Thanks guys, back to the show. Okay, at this point you had the degree, you had the car, you have a hundred thousand dollars in savings. This is unreal. Um, why not go into real estate right then or or did you on the side and also did the cop? Like what happened next?
0: No, I didn't really have any desire to be a real estate agent. I didn't know anything about money. I was really it was this simple. That's why I wrote this book because you don't have to be that smart to be good with money. You just have to put your energy into the right areas. It's kind of like, like weightlifting or, or fitness. Like Yes, you can listen to Andrew Huberman. You could get completely sucked into the world of fitness and you can study free radicals and sleep cycles and REM, or you could just don't eat carbs and sugar and work out as hard as you can every time you go to the gym and you're going to end up fit, okay? It doesn't have to be as complicated as you make it. Oftentimes, whether it's financial fitness, physical fitness we make it complicated because we have to come up with content to tell people every single day when they tune into a podcast. Okay. But like being a real estate agent, if you make contacts, if you sound confident, if you know a lot about real estate and you do that a lot, you're going to get people that come to you. And if you have a plan for how to walk them through a process to put them in a contract, you're going to make money. It doesn't have to be complicated, but we kind of make it complicated. Oh shoot. I'm sorry, Shelby. What was the question that you asked me there?
1: No, it's okay. I it was a question own. of where did real estate come in?
0: There we go. Thank you. Yeah. So I you. didn't know <laughs> that I so I didn't know at the time that I wanted to go be a big real estate investor. I just knew at some point I'm gonna need to buy a house. So I had a friend and he had a house in contract and he was moving away to go to Bible school and he was gonna lose his earnest money deposit. And I just thought maybe I'll buy this house so that he doesn't have to lose his money. And I went and looked at it and it was like a 2,600 square foot house that he had under contract for $215,000. It was three years old. This was at the P, the bottom of the housing crash. And I renegotiated it to 195,000, and I just bought a house and said, hey, I'll just put a tenant in there. I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew it's better to buy real estate because someday I'm gonna need a house. It was, it was was That was how I became a real estate investor. Now, I learned, okay, I need to hire a property manager, I learned how to calculate what cash flow would be. And then I intentionally went and bought another house. But the first one I just kind of fell into. I didn't intend to be a real estate agent. I wanted to be a cop. I was all about being a cop. I was going to every class I could take that they would send me to as a cop. I was trying to learn as much as I could. I was an instructor for everything I could be as a cop. I was studying from the best people in the department to try to be just like them. I was trying to excel at being a cop. It just ended up being something that sort of like the environment turned against me. I was in the Bay Area of California. They do not like police. We were getting in trouble all the time for doing absolutely nothing wrong. It kind of became trendy to say, oh, we could get a cop in trouble. The public liked hearing it. It was very unhealthy to work that many hours all the time. My body was starting to have some issues. Like I developed really bad plantar fasciitis from just standing for 20 hours a day, four or five days a week like that. I wasn't sleeping so becoming a real estate agent was something I did when I just realized I can't sustain this dead sprint of working this many hours, but I know that I that's what I have to do in this environment to make money. So like I talk about in Pillars, I just saw that because I had, because I had maxed out my opportunity in this space, I didn't feel bad about going and taking on a second job, like getting my real estate license and learning that and throwing myself into there. I think a lot of people that don't make the jump from one job to another, one career to another, W-2 to 1099, or even just asking their boss for a raise is that they're not already crushing it at what they're doing. They're holding back. They're sandbagging it. They're just going through the motions, and they're waiting for life to come along and touch them on the head with the magic fairy wand of success and say – we've seen something special in you, Shelby, that we haven't seen in anybody else. And we want to make you the CEO of this startup that's going to IPO and you're going to become a millionaire. Your fairy cash mother has arrived and here it is, right? And and I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's from Disney movies or if it's something about the American culture where we're constantly telling people what they deserve or we're trying to manifest success rather than just asking the simple question of, Well, what would a successful person look like and how do I become that? Which actually makes sense to do. But we wait, we don't give our best. We don't give our best until somebody else makes it worth our while. My whole argument is to start training to be the best at what you're doing right now. Hit a ceiling to where that job can't give you any more opportunities and it will feel right to go look for another job. You won't feel like you're betraying your boss. You won't feel resentful that you work so hard at this company and they don't appreciate you. You'll go to another company and you'll pick it up really quick and you'll do really well because you have all the habits that you need. When I became an agent, to answer your question, I was not good at talking. I was not good at being personable. I was definitely a cop. I did not like sales whatsoever, But I had the work ethic of like, I'm going to study what the top producers do. I'm going to surround myself with the people that are good at this. I'm going to make the people that are good at this like me so that they mentor me. And I just kind of fell into it. And then I I ended up leaving, being a cop and doing this. And my first year I did it full time. I was the top producer in my office and I sort of developed the identity as I'm the top person and I don't want to let it slip. And I've been that ever since.
1: A lot of trends in your story of like taking every opportunity and then regardless of what that opportunity is, busting your ass for it and nothing being beneath you. Um, I love how you said that when you first became an agent, you weren't good at talking and you weren't personable because mm. I, I, you're a DC personality?
0: Yes, yes. Is that right? Okay. Yep. So
1: yeah, the, on the disc profile for listeners, the the high D is the you know right to the point, direct, get shit done type of thing. And then mm-hmm. the C, which... I mean, dude, that's probably another reason why you've been so good at scaling the way you have is you get the things done and then you do it correctly, like through the C, you know, the systems, the processes, because I think, you know, people know you from bigger pockets. They probably think of you a lot of as like the systems guy as well.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is a profile of people that tend to be a little bit more successful, but they're not good with humans. So the stretch for me was working on the eye. Having to learn to just be more personal, I don't think that's an issue that you've ever had probably from the time you came at the womb. Yes, you were charming <laughs> people. Your eye is like sky high. You're a huge eye, like that Illuminati eye on the top of the thing. Like You're all eye, right? But for those of us that are not that way, it can be yeah. very daunting to have to go make contacts and not be worn out by talking to people and not worry about what people think and have the patience you have to take with human beings to be a top producing agent. But look, if you're listening to this podcast and you're an agent, you chose this profession. It doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable with it. Like one of the things I'll tell our agents all the time when they say, I don't want to go on social media. I just, I just not comfortable. What are people going to think? I don't like being on camera. I get it. I could tell you don't like it. You don't seem very good at it. There's no personality here. However, the clients that you want don't really care if you're not comfortable on camera. They don't really care about any of your issues that you're telling me right now. They care about one thing. Are you my best option to get a house or to sell my house? That's all they care about. And you either become what they want and make it easy for them to choose you by portraying confidence and friendliness and all the things that makes them feel good by focusing on them. Or you stay in your comfort zone and you make your excuses and you vent to your friends and you secretly like just, you know, can't wait till cocktail hour to go drink and not have to do anything and don't make your contacts. And you get to feel good about yourself, but you don't make any money. But it's really that simple. And and this may irritate a couple of people. I may get roasted in the comments for being insensitive. And it's not that I I don't empathize with them. I do. I feel bad that it's hard. It was hard for me. The way I got through it was I just recognized no one cared if it was hard for me. Your clients, it's not their job to make you feel good. It's your job to make them feel good. And if you want to sell more houses, you have to be good at being what your client's going to want.
1: Dude, you're spitting fire! Like I'm pumped, and you know what's funny though? You think I'm an I? I'm actually a high D, and I I Whoa. trail by an I. Yeah, so it's I'm like the human version of you. You're like the robot version, but
0: <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right.
1: Tricking people into thinking you're human. You're doing a great job
0: though. The side work. Um, that's ex- I'm like what that Mark Zuckerberg meme. When he is, yeah. people think that he's actually a robot pretending to be a human. He's like, what would a human do when he tries to do it? That's That that's, does relate me that's pretty literally well. You.
1: There you go. Perfect. <laughs> okay, dude, your book. So I was fortunate enough to get a little sneak peek here and was hoping that you'd share a little, you know, read ahead with our listeners. So in the beginning of the book, you talk about the importance of defense. And I was mm. just hoping you could elaborate on what you mean by like the defensive principles and defense first. What does that mean?
0: I would love to talk about this. So I started writing this book about two years ago because I could see the writing on the wall that the party that we've had for the last decade was coming to an end. Now, none of us can predict the future, but it sure looked to me like unless they did another round of stimulus, which who knows they might. But if they don't, this really easy money that we've had, the really good market that we had is going to be coming to an end. And I was trying to anticipate the needs of the people reading the book. Again, it doesn't matter what I want to talk about. It matters what the people out there that are listening to me need to hear. And I realized that most of us in the real estate space, whether that's owning rental property, buying rental property, selling houses for agents, anything like that, have gotten accustomed to a baseline of effort that would get a certain result that is not realistic and sustainable. It's been the best market we may have ever had uh, interest rates have been going down, making houses worth more, meaning you could sell your house for way more than you thought and buy another one for more than you thought and still have a lower payment because your rates were low. The economy was doing good. Unemployment was very low compared to what it was like at other times. You couldn't have created a better market for real estate. Well, it's, at a certain point, it's going to come to an end. And it's going to get difficult again. And no one thinks about defense when the money's flowing in all the time, but you, you should be. So the reason I start with the first pillar is defense. So the three pillars are defense, how much you save, offense, how much you make, and then investing the difference. And most people in my world on bigger pockets, all they want to talk about is the offense pillar. They're just all about investing, right? On a podcast like this, most people just want to hear about—wait, let me say that wrong. All they want to talk about is the investing pillar is what I meant to say for bigger pockets. On a podcast like this, all they want to talk about is the offense pillar. How do I make more money? Nobody likes to hear about the saving one. It's just not fun, right? Like I don't mind going to the gym and working out really hard, but I really hate it when I just have to eat broccoli and chicken, right? It's not sexy, but man, that's where the results come from. Like Shelby's eating a lot of broccoli and chicken, right? That's where the abs come from. It's not just from the sit-ups. So I start with it because if you don't have discipline in this area, it literally does not matter how much you make and it does not matter how big you scale your portfolio, you will lose it. You'll be working really hard, putting in long hours, exhausting yourself, and you'll have nothing to show for it at the end of the day, other than the accolades, the awards, all of the ego stuff that we get as real estate agents to feel good. All the money is going to be gone if you can't learn to save. So that's where you start. You start with having a budget, and it doesn't need to be a draconian budget unless your goals are that big, but my, my thought is you need to have a plan for where the money you make goes. You shouldn't be spending money on things just because it shouldn't be absent-minded spending. You really need to sit down and say, I want X amount of my money to go to X amount of stuff. And if you spend it on that, you've already chosen it. You're okay with it. So the book starts off with uh, the the skills you need to build to be good at defense, being aware that we live in a world that is constantly marketing to us and trying to get us to spend our money, that there are people that are much smarter than you and me and, and everyone whose full-time job it is, is to figure out how to get me to spend money on things that I don't need. There are big companies that are hiring marketing firms. Every commercial that you hear, very little of it is selling you on something that's going to improve your life. Most of it is selling you on something that's going to improve their life. So becoming aware of that and, and tracking your money is the first step to becoming wealthy.
1: A quick word on our toolbox, we know it can be overwhelming thinking about all of the systems you want to build into your business. And that is why we ask guests to submit their favorite checklist, template, or tracker so you don't have to build from the ground up. Go to realestaterockstarsnetwork.com and click toolbox for your free access. Thanks so much. If I'm listening to this and I am, I'm bought into the idea of a budget and I'm thinking of it from like a real estate agent's perspective. I don't know if you have this, but do you have like some sort of breakdown of how you allocate, you know, funds towards certain pieces within your real estate business? And I'm talking about like marketing versus like, I don't know. I,
0: I don't put percentages towards certain things. I do look at how much money we spend on marketing and we track how much of that converted into sales. So I literally just did this for the mortgage company. We were buying leads. Our people were really busy. My uh, the, the people that work for the company were like, oh yeah, look at, here's our numbers. They were measuring all this gross stuff. And when I dove into the profit and loss statement, I realized that while our gross numbers looked fantastic, our net was pathetic. And it was just, they didn't have the experience of recognizing the metrics you check can really matter. So you come on shows like this and you often talk about how many houses you sold, your gross sales volume. There could be agents that sell eight houses a year that are left with more money than agents that sell a hundred houses a year. That can happen. So I don't necessarily allocate an X amount of money towards certain things, Shelby, because what will happen is you'll say 20% of our money goes towards uh, operations. 20% goes towards marketing. And as long as you're within those numbers, you feel like you did a good job, but you're not asking yourself how hard did that 20% work? The 20% for marketing, like for us, was not being spent on good leads. The leads were not converting. So we immediately just went and cut out the leads. And now we'll wait and see, do the do the numbers even go down? My guess is going to be, based on what I've seen, I don't think that our our gross revenue is going to go down much at all, cutting out those leads. But I think the that net's going to go up quite a bit. Same for salaries. What you want to be looking at is, are the people that work for you working hard and efficiently and productively? Is it leading to closings, okay? Or are they fitting within your budget, but they're just, they're sandbagging. They're calling it in or phoning it in. They're not really trying hard to put your clients into contract. When you're tracking, you will start to ask different questions instead of just, did I make money or lose money or how much money you'll start to say, did this dollar work hard? Did this $8,000 that I paid for transaction coordinators or showing assistants or whatever you're doing, Did that result in something that helped the business or did I just give somebody else $6,000 that month and I didn't close any deals? If you're not looking at where the money's going, you won't really know.
1: So you started writing this book two years ago because the party was ending. Well, you saw that the party was going to end, right? Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your thoughts on the economy today and as we look ahead.
0: It's, it's hard to know exactly where we're headed. The stuff I'm seeing though is that let me let me take a step back. The Fed is trying to stop inflation because we have rampant inflation. My perspective, my take on this, is that we have inflation because we printed so much money. It's just the way it goes. When you print that much money, you make dollars worth less, so it takes more dollars to buy the same thing. You can't really stop infla you can't stop prices from going up when you print more money. The Fed has a different perspective. Their perspective is that if you lower interest rates, prices go up. If you raise interest rates, prices go down. And it's easy to believe that because at the same time they were printing money, they were also lowering rates. So they can say, well, prices went up because we lowered rates. So now if we put prices up, then uh, prices should come back down. If we put rates up, prices should come back down. I don't think it works that way. I think what happens is that when you lower rates, People spend money more frequently. You increase the velocity of money. So if interest rates are low and I feel wealthy because my house is worth more, the stocks are worth more, my portfolio is worth more, I'm more likely to go buy a more expensive car. When I go buy the Mercedes instead of the Honda, the Mercedes dealership makes money. The person that works at the Mercedes dealership makes money. The people who produce the the Mercedes cars, they all get paid a little bit more than the person that makes the Hondas. Everyone gets more money. So now they're more likely to spend it. They're going to go out to the restaurant. They're going to spend money. They're going to take a vacation. They're going to stay at a nice Airbnb. They're going to order more fitness equipment for... Uh, their house, they're just, everyone spends money. And then those people get more money and you get this amplified effect of everyone feels wealthy. So they all spend money more. The velocity of money increases. Everyone starts to become more wealthy. Well, when you raise rates like what they've done, it makes you feel less wealthy, makes you feel more poor. You don't want to go buy a Mercedes because the interest rates are higher to buy it. You'd rather buy the Honda, or you'd rather buy a used car, or you're just going to keep the car that you have you end up spending less money when they raise rates. That just decreases the velocity of money. You have less dollars changing hands, which makes everybody feel more poor. That creates less wealth overall. There's less taxes that are being paid. The government goes, "Oh, we're not collecting as much tax revenue. What are we going to have to do? It creates a bigger problem. The, the overall perspective that I have is I think because we've raised rates so quickly, and so dramatically i mean literally from like 3% to almost 8% now it doesn't make real estate less expensive because real estate is is decided by supply and demand and while increasing rates can reduce demand we still have so much more demand than supply right now it's not making real estate less expensive it's just making everything else more expensive, which is causing a bigger problem in the economy. So what I think we're gonna start seeing is companies are gonna be having less revenue coming in because less dollars are changing hands. They're gonna start laying off some of the people that they've hired that don't work as hard. We've already seen this happen when Elon Musk bought X or Twitter. He came in, he said, we don't need nearly as many people as we have, slashed a whole bunch of them and they were gone. The company really hasn't skipped a beat. They were bloated. They did not need that many people. When that happens, you're going to have less people that are employed. They're going to feel more poor. They're going to spend less money. It does trigger an actual recession or even a depression if it gets bad. If you're listening to this and you have a W-2 job, odds are for the last 10 years, you've heard you're stupid for having a W-2 job. You're a slave to the man. Real financial freedom is working for yourself and all the inspirational Instagram and TikTok stories that everybody likes to say, whether they make themselves look much better than they are. Those people may be begging for a W 2 job if things keep getting worse. Okay. I don't, it's not to try to scare people, but I like to prepare for the worst. And I am seeing people in my world that at one point were bragging that their eight hour a day job, they were able to automate it and get it done in two hours and spend the other six hours doing real estate investing are now getting laid off because that company looked at their profit and loss statement, much like I was saying earlier, and said, I don't need this much on salary when there's less money coming in. And the companies are realizing that they can get by with less people. If that's something that you're worried about, your goal should be to be the best employee at your job. You want to be the last one that gets fired. You want to be the person that they need the most. If you go back to my restaurant days, if the if less people would have come into the restaurant and we had to lay off staff, it wouldn't have been me that was laid off. It would have been all the employees that weren't as good as me. Or maybe they get one day a week, but I still get four days a week because I'm the better server. I can make the restaurant more money. They trust me a whole lot more. Really, to sum it up, in the last 10 years, you could get by with a mediocre performance because there was so much money going around. I don't think that that's going to be the case moving forward. I think that you're going to see the cream rising to the top, and those are going to be the people that keep their jobs. And this big opportunity that, that usually comes in a recession when real estate prices drop is only going to be available to you if you still have a job and you still have a down payment and you can still get a loan. And if you're one of these people that's really struggling financially because you haven't been working hard, you haven't been building your skills, you haven't been giving it your best, you've just been kind of coasting through life and expecting to manifest success instead of working for it, you may be in for a rude awakening.
1: That kind of perfectly segues into chapter seven and eight in your book, which is within the offensive pillar, you talk about the pursuit of excellence and skill development. So my question is, so those two, of course, (laughs) but what other offensive principles for maybe those people who are, you know, they don't want to be that chunk that gets left behind. They want to be the cream of the crop. What are some (laughs) offensive principles for them to make more money?
0: Yeah. So when I looked at how I had been able to make more money every year than the year before, I realized it wasn't just luck. It didn't just happen. There was actually skills that I developed that led to making more money. And then I wrote a chapter about each of them. So there's one chapter on the principles of offensive success that I realized like this is what people who make money do well. Like you said, the pursuit of excellence and skill development are two of the chapters that you really need to start with. I did a TED talk on the ability to build skills skills don't just happen. Okay. I believe Shelby, at one point you were a really good gymnast. Is that right? Yes. Like you didn't just wake up and realize I'm good at being a gymnast. There were specific exercises you did, training that you did, fundamentals that you learned, stretches that you did. You were intentional about creating a body and then creating a skill set that would make you good at being a gymnast. And the people that were in that world that were training with you that were trying to be really good, they didn't just end up being a good gymnast. I think we look at life sometimes like, if I'm not naturally good at something, it just isn't for me. Like for some reason, when every one of us picks up a snowboard for the first time and we try to do it and we suck at it, we think there's something wrong with us. We feel, oh, I suck at life, right? Nobody's good at snowboarding when you first try to do it. Every job I ever had, I felt like I was an idiot when I started it. I hated the feeling. It was terrible. Just why am I so stupid? I can't figure this out. It is the intentional skill building that get the confidence going. It's the same way you become an agent. I don't, I can't figure out how to write the forms and zip forms, and I don't know how to use the MLS. And this person just asked me about mortgage rates or insurance or property taxes. I don't know what I am supposed to say. Maybe I am not meant for this. Like those are normal thoughts. You got to learn how to push that away and be intentional about building skills. I also talk about leadership people that are leaders get paid way more. And I define leadership in this book as the intentional taking on of responsibility. Most people at the jobs I had were trying to find another person to be responsible for the result. Okay. The hostess didn't want to have to help bust the tables because their job was just to walk the person from the front door to the table and give them the menu. And they looked at having to do anything other than that, like it was unfair, right? You'd hear people say, that's not my job. Okay, When you're on a basketball team or you were in the military, Shelby, so you have a goal that you want to achieve, it doesn't help you to say, that's not my job, okay? When you're fighting the Germans and they're trying to kill you, it's stupid to say, well, it's not my job to help go find the bullets for the soldiers. My job is to do this thing. When your goal is to win and you're on a team, you just say what needs to be done. You take on more responsibility. And the funny thing is, when you take on responsibility, you build skills. You grow as a person. You build confidence. And those are the things that lead to making more money. The The analogy I use in the book is going to work every day and saying, I don't want to do that. That's not my job, is the functional equivalent to going to the gym every day and saying, I don't want to have to lift the weight. Somebody else has to do that. If we went to the gym for an hour and left and said, what a great day. I didn't have to touch a weight at all. We would say, you're an idiot. But people do that at work every day and they actually are proud of themselves. They found a way to make somebody else do the work instead of them. So in the book, I talk about take on more responsibility. Ask your boss what more you can do. Say what more skills you can learn. Okay, if your job is to work the register at a place that sells auto parts, can you ask your boss if you can help with the bookkeeping? Can you ask the boss if you can help with ordering the parts or marketing? Like, What skills can you learn in that environment that are going to make you better? And then I talk about a winning mindset, just the way that winners think. I I, I go back to a lot of professional athletes that did really well or top producing real estate agents, all the top producing agents that I know, they never say, I've got enough listings. I don't need another one. There is not enough listings. Okay. If they've got 10 listings and there's an 11th one, it's like personal. I need that 11th listing. They're just going for it with everything. I like to see people that do that with opportunity in life because you don't know when it's going to come. I see a lot of people that get an opportunity and they're like, you know what, Shelby, it's just not the right time for me right now. I don't feel very well. I haven't been sleeping that good. Um, I really, I'm really focused right now on a hobby I have right now. I'm learning how to make vases, like in that movie Ghost, you know, with like the mud and the hands. And I'm really just focused on 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 my baking. Uh, later on, when when that opportunity comes, I'll take it. Like life just doesn't care if you're ready for the opportunity or not. When you meet that person that would be a really good spouse for you or that job opportunity comes or whatever the case would be, they don't really care what you want in life. What they're looking for is what they're looking for. And if you don't fit that, then they move on and they find somebody else. I'm a big proponent the more I do this of saying, well, what can I do to become what the market wants as opposed to, well, how do I look for the perfect job or opportunity that fits my timeline? Winners tend to think that way. Uh, And the other thing is people like Michael Jordan, uh, they're always lifting up the people that are around them. Okay. When you're a winner and you go get a job or you get assigned to a certain unit in the military, you get put on a team, you make everyone around you better. You sort of demand excellence from other people. And when you give your best every day, that's what will happen. I saw that happen in the restaurant. When I got promoted from busboy to waiter pretty quickly, the other busboys that had worked there for a lot longer than me didn't like it. There was some animosity because they thought it's not fair because they were looking at it like this is a socialistic environment. Like I put my time in, I have seniority over David. And my boss was like, yeah, I don't care. He's better than you. This is a meritocracy. And they sort of woke up and were like, okay, we better step up our game. And what do you know it six months after that, three of them got promoted to waiter and the whole restaurant benefited from an overall better work ethic. I've seen that happen at many things I've been involved in. When I got to Bigger Pockets and I took over the podcast or I started writing books, I would share my system for how I did things with them. The staff realized this is better than the way we've been doing it. They incorporated that system, then all the other podcasts could copy it. All the other offers were were given stuff that was the same way, right? If people that are listening to this take that same approach to the job they have right now, they will find that the company will start to do better and everyone's fear Shelby is the same. I already can hear the the objections. It's going to be, but what if I work really hard and they don't give me a raise? David, you don't understand. My boss is a total jerk. They don't care what I do at all. All they care about is them. That will happen a lot of the time. But when you're the person that's building the skills and lifting the weights every day, you make yourself a better hire for someone else and you can go find the job that has the better boss and has the better pay.
1: For sure. It's, A lot of times, you know, people will see someone successful, whether it be on the Internet, you know, whether it's listening to you on this podcast and be like, gosh, I just want to be like David Green. I want to skip ahead and I want to be like him right away. But really, it's Mm. like even if the old you had the opportunity to skip ahead into the place you are now, you wouldn't be prepared. You wouldn't have developed so the good. skills or had the experience to capitalize on what you're, you would probably just, you know, crumble. So for the the people who want to skip ahead, it's like, it's the reps and the suffering that builds you into the person that you want to become.
0: That's literally the example in the book that I'm so funny you said crumble. Cause I give the analogy that everybody wants to be strong in the gym. Okay. Every dude listening to this would love if he could bench press 500 pounds. like. And, and let's look at making money. Like You can make a million dollars if you're the equivalent of being able to lift 500 pounds of value that you give to the market. Well, if you took the average guy and said, hey, you want to be a millionaire? You want to be the CEO? You want to be a top producer? Here's 500 pounds on the bar. It would just crush their rib cage. The whole thing would collapse. They, like you said, you can't do it. The only way you get to 500 pounds is you add five pounds as soon as you get to the point where the bar doesn't feel as heavy anymore. And how does that happen? You keep putting the reps in exactly like you said. Now, if you put the reps in, but you're not going your best every day, you probably maintain where you're at, but you don't get stronger. And and I, I hear people in the gym. This is funny. You may hear it too. Like I know like there would be people in the gym and you'd ask, how was your workout? And they would say it was good, but I stopped when I got to seven. Like why? Well, it was starting to burn and you would laugh. Like that's the point. That's why you're doing it. It's a You're trying to get to the point that it burns, and then you're like, How many can I do when it burns? That you go until you can't do it again, right? I really see the same attitude in the workplace. Oh, it's stressful. I need a break. I need to stop. Like, think about being in war. Do you get to say it's stressful and I want to stop, right? The most successful people in the military would be like your special forces people or your generals. Like, there's never a time they're not under stress. It is always hard for them. But that's what creates that gem of a human being, like the Jocko Willinks of the world that we all respect and look up to. He didn't get to say, it's hard, it's stressed. I'm going to stop. He said, it's hard, it's stressed. I can't do this. What do I need to change about me? That's lifting the weights all the time. Now, I know that this won't land with everyone the same because my opinion is that we've been getting this diet of processed food and junk from social media of influencers that always say the same thing. Here's how to make a whole bunch of money without any work. Here's how I made a bunch of money really easy. And now I'm coming in and I'm like, no, you got to go to the gym every day and work out as hard as you can. But the good news here is you actually will start to fall in love with the process of becoming great. Great. When you go to the gym and you work out your best, it becomes addicting. You start to track your success. You're like, oh man, I want to go back and I know I can get a new personal record, right? When you talk to people that are super into CrossFit, or some of these things, they're not mad about their workout. They're excited about their workout. That's why they're talking about it all the time. And lo and behold, they usually have a really nice body and they're very fit. That's the secret. So for the real estate agents that are having trouble with their business, I can tell you right now, I don't need to, like, I wouldn't have to do a deep dive into any of them. They're just not what the market wants. They're not what the clients want. They don't sound confident. They don't know what they're doing. They haven't read the contract from top to bottom and it shows when they talk to somebody. They're scared that a client's gonna ask a question they don't know the answer to. And then what they're doing is subconsciously looking to join a team or find a brokerage or find a model that allows them to sell houses without having to get better. It's like, what gym can I join that isn't gonna be hard for me, right? And that's the Planet Fitnesses. There's a lot of real estate brokerages that are the Planet Fitnesses of the workout world where, oh, somebody's working out hard, Sound the lunk alarm. This person's trying too much. We don't like that. It makes people feel better. You can make money in this industry. You can make money in other industries. In a capitalistic environment, you really do set your own journey and your own uh, ceiling, but you have to become what the market wants. And that's the message that I think people haven't been getting for the last decade.
1: Real quick, as you likely know, the 2024 Real Estate Rockstars Mastermind is sold out. But if one of your preferred vendors is looking for marketing opportunities, we are looking for sponsors. We would love to get their name and business out to 80 highly motivated real estate agents from across the country. Know someone who'd be interested? Go to realestaterockstarsnetwork.com and shoot us a quick email for more information. Thanks so much. Back to the show. The easy button doesn't exist. I feel like just like what you said, people are, you're right. They're just looking for the easy button. And that's, I think that's part of the reason why people are so distractible as well with the shiny object syndrome is because they're like, well, maybe that'll be easier. Well, maybe that'll work instantly overnight. And it's like, no, like everything works. You just have to commit to it and actually put in true effort and Mm. withstand the storm long enough to reap the benefits of those efforts. Dude, you're la- oh, not your last, but something else I want to touch on before we go to wrap up is <coughs> improvement hacks. I freaking love me some business life improvement hacks. Hit me with some hacks.
0: <laughs> all right. So first off, we all know that we don't want to waste time on things. Most of us have enough time to do stuff. Like I, as busy as I am, I rarely run out of time. I can't think of the last time I ran out of time. I run out of energy. There will be a point where I'm like, I can't think anymore. I'm just frustrated with this. I don't want to do it. Every day, what causes me to fail is not that I ran out of time. It's that I ran out of energy, right? So as I've gone on my own journey, I've looked at, well, what are the things when I'm doing them well that gives me more energy so that I don't run out? Now, especially for real estate agents, you have to monitor your energy because you're going to be on the phone with a lot of people. This is why the high eyes tend to do better in our business, even though that their whole job is like an SHIT show. They can't be organized with anything, but they're still top producers because they have the motor to just keep talking to people all the time. It's so important. So I'll talk about monitoring what drains your energy. Okay. Food is a big one. Like I got to a certain point where if I ate a sandwich or a hamburger or something in the middle of the day, it was done. Three hours of food coma and I wasn't going to be able to concentrate very much. I wasn't going to be able to think through complex problems. So knowing what you can eat and when you can eat is a bigger deal than what a lot of people think. Uh, Other humans, energy vampires. I talk about that in the book. There's certain people that just suck the life out of you and you leave and you're like, I don't want to do anything. I just feel gross. Putting up barriers between you and those people. Like, I literally got an office across the parking lot from the Keller Williams office where my license is because when I walk in there, I get a whole bunch of agents that are like, David, 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 David. They all just want to come and talk to me. They want to ask a bunch of questions they're going to do nothing with. It sucks all the energy out of me. And I'm not a person that's going to buy a house from you. You need to be out talking to people that might want to buy a house or sell a house, Not, not talking to me. So learning how to put up these barriers between you and other people will really help. I talk about spacing energy. So again, to go back to the fitness analogy, because we've been doing so much of that today, you could be at the gym for eight hours and you could lift weights the entire time. You could exercise for eight hours and not get tired, assuming that you had food to keep you there, but you couldn't do the same muscle group the whole time. I could not work my biceps out for eight hours. Okay, But if I started with my biceps and then I went to my triceps and then I did my shoulders and then I did my chest and then I did my calves and then I did my hamstrings and then I did my quads and then I did some cardio and then I did some sit-ups, you could get through a very long period of time if you space out the muscle groups. I've had to learn to do that mentally. It takes a different kind of energy to record a podcast, to think about what to say, to bring high energy, to uh, feed off the questions that you're answering me, to think about what the audience wants to hear, that's a different muscle group than analyzing a spreadsheet and looking for where the money is going in the business. That's a different muscle group than answering emails. And it's a different muscle group than writing a book. I've learned to bounce between the different tasks that I have to do in the day and not do them all at the same time because I w- I can only focus hard on something for so long. I-, I couldn't write a book for eight hours a day. My brain would just be rebelling against me. I couldn't hold focus that long, right? But I also don't want to talk to people for eight hours a day. That's exhausting. I don't want to be on stage presenting people to people for eight hours a day. They're all good in chunks. So a lot of people that go to work and they have a job, especially a real estate agent, do your lead generation right away before you're tired, when you still have high energy. When you're done with your lead generation, look at lead follow-up. It's going to use a different part of your brain. All right, I've talked to all the people. I've planted all these seeds. Now, let me look at the people I've talked to previously. And you're thinking creatively what could I say in a video? What kind of a text could I send? What kind of a meme could I send? How do I get this person to want to reply to me? What kind of a property could I send them that would get them interested again and replying? And then move to your marketing, different muscle. And then move to your scheduling, different muscle. Halfway through your day, now you can get into all of the escrows that you have. It's tempting for agents to always want to do that to start their day because they don't want to do lead generation. And they just babysit that one escrow all day long. We all know that agent that asks us about the tiny little detail in a contract that they never should have even seen because they're looking for any reason to not go talk to people. They just want to babysit that thing and call that their job. So that's another one of the performance improvement hacks that I that I talk about, like making sure that you're not doing the same thing uh, constantly. And there's a lot of stuff like that that people don't realize that's draining them and they're, they're going through the day And it's using up energy that they're not aware of. One of the things that I'll talk about when people are going to have a conversation with someone is they usually don't rehearse the conversation before they get there. People that are good communicators, they don't just jump into the conversation and just figure it out. They've thought about, okay, I'm going to say this. I know how they are. They're not going to like that. They're going to reply like this. Let me think about the right way to articulate this. Okay, like Shelby, you said you're married now, right? I'm sure in a marriage, this comes up. You can't just spout whatever you're thinking or feeling in the moment because you hurt someone's feelings or they get defensive or they don't understand your motives or you used a word that triggered them. You kind of have to think about how they communicate and then present the information in the way they want. That's why the DISC profile is so powerful is it helps me understand how I should communicate to other people. That's a thing that's a performance improvement hack. Um, I talk a lot about preparing for tomorrow today. Don't just show up for your workday not knowing what you're doing. Look at your schedule the night before and look at what you have to do and visualize what success looks like in those areas.
1: What did we not talk about?
0: That's such a good question. I've noticed you're like the second podcaster that asked me that and I'm like, man, that's really good. When did people start doing that? It's really good. Uh, What we haven't talked about is how much information people get about being successful that is inherently deceptive and they don't realize it. Okay. Everyone loves free. Free is the four letter word people love. Most of us get our information from free sources. We love YouTube. We love TikTok. We love Instagram. And if you can give me free and wrap it up in nine seconds, even better. Our attention spans are getting really, really short. Okay. Here's the problem. No one's doing anything for free. You may not be paying money for it, but you're paying for it with your attention, you're paying for it with your clicks, you're paying for it with your eyeballs, you're paying for it with your subscriptions, or they're trying to sell you something. So what happens is every single piece of content that you consume, unless it comes from a mentor who is getting some emotional gratification for helping you, that content you're consuming is specifically wired to get you to wanna do something. And it's gonna present the information in a way that isn't really accurate. Stuff like this book is not inherently exciting, okay? If I came on here and I said, Shelby, I've got a lead source that is guaranteed to give you an 80% closing rate, it's only $100 per lead. Do you know how many clicks I'd be getting? How many calls I'd be getting? Everyone would be falling over themselves to say, give it to me. But the smart people know that would never exist. Because if there was a lead source that was that great, I would just be keeping all those leads and closing them. I wouldn't be giving them to other people, okay? We are looking for the easy button, like you said. And the irony in this whole thing is the people that sell us the easy button, they don't even have an easy life. These YouTubers and TikTokers and Instagrammers that are selling you on the easy button, They're working 12-hour days and analyzing what makes people click on it and how to present information and what I need to do to get you to want to buy my course. They don't have the easy life they're selling you on. Overall, most of us are getting played. We're being sold a false bill of goods. And then what happens is we take on the shame of not being successful. Because on Instagram, it sure looks like this agent sells a bunch of houses. It sure looks like this gorgeous person just shows up and they're selling luxury real estate. And well, I'm over here sloughing along with an FHA buyer who's panicking over every tear in the screen door and doesn't have enough money and is panicking at 9 o'clock at night and calling my phone, Like it, my life doesn't look like that. There must be a problem with me. There's not. You're being deceived. Everyone is being deceived by what they see. And it's because we're getting all this information for free. So for the people that are listening to this, who are just, they're trying their hardest. They're pushing every day. They're showing up. They're doing what they're told to do and they're not succeeding. It's not always your fault. I mean, it is your fault that you're not doing the things that work, but it's not your fault that you've been deceived. I don't know if you're old enough, Shelby, but I remember during like the nineties, it was really popular to have these workout equipment infomercials. Do you remember those? like the thigh master or the Ab Roller. So they would show this like really attractive fit person with this workout machine that you could order for your house, like a little thing that you'd put between your legs and you'd squeeze it, right? And they're like a drop dead gorgeous model. And they're smiling as they're squeezing their legs with this machine. And it was like, you can do this from the comfort of your own home. And it's so easy and you'll look like her. And it never worked. That was the whole idea was you have to sell people that you can get a result and it's easy to get them to part ways with their money. But no one ever got fit from that. They didn't get fit until CrossFit got popular. And it was like, you're gonna work out so hard that you would never come back unless we made it a cult. And we got a whole bunch of people to just like brainwash you into coming back every day. And we created stuff like PRs and workouts of the day and this whole environment that would just trick you into thinking, I want to keep coming back because that's the only way you're going to look like that person right there. That's the rhythm of how life works. Now, the good news is you can have that body or you can have that business. You can have what you want, but you have to do the things that produce it and if you're not doing them, it's probably because you got all this junk in your head. The best thing people could do is to detox from where they're getting the idea, the marketing ploys that are being sold to agents about what their business should look like and recognize that it's about being what the client wants, not what TikTok looks like.
1: Proud cult member of the CrossFit cult. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, David, people are looking Is it easy,
0: Shelby? Is it easy to, no, it easy to do it? It's terribly difficult.
1: Yeah, I've yes. tried Horrible. several times. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it sucks.
0: That's the reality, though. Like the top producing agents want to cry all the time. Like, yeah. That is, I, I'm so glad you're sharing it. It's, we're not mocking CrossFit. We're just saying it's so hard. That's why they have to do those mind tricks with you. Like the top producers are the same way. You want to be in a top producing team, they're going to push you so hard. They're going to have to come up with ways to keep you motivated, but that's okay. You love working out. You love fitness. You hate it when you're there, but you love the result and you do get addicted to the hard work. And if we get people to take your, work ethic there and apply it to their agent business, they will be more successful.
1: People are listening and they're like super pumped. I know I am. So they want to buy your book. They want to follow you on Instagram. They want to basically where can they find you? Where they should where should they go?
0: Yeah, get pumped up. I like that. Yeah. Y'all wanna have Shelby's CrossFit work ethic in our agent business. <laughs> Uh, they can go to davidgreen24.com. They can check me out there. They can send me a DM on Instagram or any other social media at davidgreen24. Follow me there and you'll see that I'm posting content that is not giving a unrealistic view of what business and uh, real estate sales is actually like. They can check out the onebrokerage.com. That's my mortgage company's website, spartanleague.com. That's the shirt that I'm wearing. This is the mastermind that I run that teaches people these same things, how to make money, how to save money and how to invest it. And they can go to biggerpockets.com slash pillars to find the book.
1: Love it. This has been so fun for me because the last time we did a podcast, the tables were turned at, you know, bigger pockets back in 2020. And now I feel like I've had so much fun being able to like hear your take on everything and super pumped. So guys, make sure go support him. The book comes out October 17th. Freaking buy it. Go follow him. Share all the love in the world. And if you want to hang out with me, I'm on Instagram at The Shelby Show and Aaron Amuchastegi, the owner of the show, is also on the gram. Go hang out with him, Aaron Amuchastegi, and uh, hit us with feedback. I want to know how we can improve, who you want to hear, what you want to deep dive on. And otherwise, guys, David, thanks again for coming on the show. And Real Estate Rockstars, thanks for listening.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.